This story, as we've said, is, is really one of the most powerful or pinnacle foundational stories for both Jews and Christians because it's laying the foundation of who God is in pursuit of his people, what he will always do, not just what has been done, but the way that God's people have described his character, his presence, his name, and his promises. And it's meant to be, uh, we've, said, we've used the term, an allegorical history. It's the way it was written to describe historical events in a way that is more theological and presents who God is to his people. And so therefore it becomes relevant to his people throughout time. Even though it's a story written or around events that could have been 3,000 years ago. What possible relevance does it have for us today except for in these big themes of who God is and what he's done? If you've been following along, and I know we have some guests with us who haven't, um, we would notice a few things by this passage, and it seems extremely redundant. And I guess that's good. If you haven't been following along, for those that have, you'll say, well, why is this included? And we'll try to mention some reasons for that. Follow with me just from Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, through the first 13 verses of Exodus chapter 6. Another encounter between Moses and God. Moses turns to the Lord and says, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Most of us would never dare pray that boldly to God, and yet I believe we're invited to bring all of our emotion to God. We've been seeing that through the story. But the Lord, Yahweh, responds and says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, there we see that, capital L-O-R-D in most of our translations, that's the Hebrew Yahweh. By my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. We'll pause there and reflect on this. This is going to sound redundant to the conversation that Moses had at the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. And really, much of what God is saying in response is an absolute repetition of the very same words. 
So as readers or hearers of this, obviously we're going week over week, but if you were to sit down and read through this, you could have made it to chapter 6 within 15 to 20 minutes, and you would be hearing now the same thing said yet again. There's a couple, couple potentials for this. Many scholars believe there were multiple sources of this original story, which does make sense in their history, that so much was passed on through oral tradition, eventually written down in pieces, and became a story that was then brought together, woven together over, over maybe even centuries by, by a community to communicate one story. And so some scholars have believed that this is, this is actually an account of Moses meeting with God for the first time, just as the burning bush was. We have two accounts of the same conversation, ultimately, the same call of Moses, and the editors wanted to keep both in the story to show their harmony, that this is our history and it can be, it can be trustworthy. It's supposed to lead to trust. Now, I, I think that's a potential but not necessary I believe that the repetition that we'll see throughout this story is intentional. It's a literary device. There's, there's a flow to it. Think of more like poetry or song necessarily than prose or history. We have to kind of break our mold a little bit to receive God's word in this way. That there is this rhythm and that this is like a chorus or a refrain. God's people, Moses as, as a leader, he'll grow into that role, representing all of Israel, will struggle will doubt, will question God, will wrestle with him and his promises. We'll see that repeated throughout. God will affirm his presence, his promise, his willingness to receive them and to engage them. And so I believe there's a rhythm and, and a balance to this that we'll see, and we'll see this repetition throughout the whole story. God declares again his name, Yahweh, he reminds Moses of his covenant, his promise to his ancestors. Remember, he's a God of the past. He's, the God of, he's our forever God. He's a God of the future promises. So therefore, in the present, Moses, trust me. And perhaps that's what we could simply say as a summary of these first 13 verses. Trust me, Moses. Trust me. And I believe that's the question or the invitation that God gives to us as well. He starts chapter 6 by saying an incredible promise, one that we would pray for today. He says, now you will see. Now you will see what I will do. All Israel will see. Pharaoh will see. This is who I am. This is what I have done. Here is my promise. So now you will see. Trust me, Moses. That's where we enter into this passage and make it uh, personal, personal and applicable to us. If nothing else, this chapter is building this tension, isn't it? It's inviting us to ask the question, God, will you do what you've promised? And maybe even the bigger questions of God, who are you? And Moses rightly comes to God in his, in his exasperation, in his hurt, in his frustration, I didn't even want to do this, God, and now you're sending me into this place, and all that's happened is exactly what I thought would happen. Everything's gone poorly. Can anyone relate with that, with that story? God, I thought I was stepping out into faith. I was just beginning to, to follow you and to trust you, and now this? Fill in the details with your own story. 
The same questions that have been asked by humanity throughout history, that the scriptures themselves invite us to ask through the story, if not overtly, certainly there, God, who are you? Can I trust you? Are you good? Are you loving? Because this doesn't feel like it. So it's nothing new. We see it throughout the story from the, the, the very first pages. You know, in the garden when we have the serpent, I can't preach that message, why was there a serpent in the garden? But there, there was an adversary, an enemy of the good things of God. And he invited through temptation see doubt to Adam and Eve at these very core things. If God is good, why would he withhold this tree that is good from you, that would lead you to the knowledge of good and evil, that would expand your perspective? If God is a good God, why would he do that? Can he really be trusted? It's the same core script of the enemy that's been happening ever since. He hasn't had to adapt too much. We've all felt it to the same degree. Can God really be trusted? Is he who he has proclaimed himself to be, who his people have proclaimed him to be throughout history? Is he loving? Is he faithful? Can we trust him? And so we ask those same questions that Moses comes and asks to God. What Adam and Eve ultimately did wrong was not question and doubt and struggle. They didn't bring those back to their God. They took the bait of the temptation. They took the fruit. They ate in their own perspectives. See, our doubts and our, our questions and our uncertainties aren't the problem in Scripture. It's what we do with them, where we turn. And as we know, Moses is a lot of things He's, he's not the hero of this story by, by any means, but he does do this exemplarily well. He returns to God again and again in his distress, in his hurt, in his question, in his doubt, and he has bold conversations with him. And I believe the story invites us to do the same, as opposed to taking the bait of the temptation to turn and walk away. If our God is big enough he can receive all of us. We can fast forward this theme throughout the scriptures. We can come all the way to Jesus where the adversary, the enemy, that ancient devil is more overt in the temptation of Jesus. But essentially the same core questions. Look at your life. Look what is coming for you as you follow God. It would be so much better to take a different path. Follow this path. Follow my way distrust God, doubt him, but ultimately Jesus remains intimately engaged with God and trusts his word, showing us this way. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus shows us the way of engaging and even responding to the temptations and doubts of the world with faithfulness, with intimacy, with purity. The journey of faith, it seems, as that's been our metaphor in this series, is as much about discerning the distinction between our moments of our story 
and of the meta-narrative of God's story. Discerning the difference of the moments of our story versus the meta-narrative of God's. The meta-narrative that's proclaimed throughout the scriptures is God is good, is loving, is faithful, can be trusted, will deliver, redeem, heal, rescue, will ultimately bring about his purposes and promises. That's the meta-narrative. But when you zoom in, and even in our lives when we live day to day, we have moments that bring all of that into doubt and question. And so the growth in faith and walking in faith is to try to gain that perspective and to walk by trust in it, which is anything but easy. It's why it's often described in those metaphorical ways of journey and trial and walking and struggling and wrestling in these pictures that we see throughout the scriptures. Again, back to the author of Hebrews who says in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There's an invitation here to trust and to walk by faith. And we ask the question, will we? Will we endure? Will we persevere? Will we stay close? And if we will, the answer to us all is the same declaration, this ancient promise that God gives to Moses in Exodus 6.1, now you shall see what I will do. Now you shall see. Just when it seems unlikely or impossible, when there is reason to doubt and to question, now you will see. How many times God has proclaimed this promise throughout the Scriptures, sometimes verbatim, sometimes more in story form, maybe sometimes to even those who have lost faith or given up hope. Is that not the cry of the empty tomb that we celebrated last Sunday to the women who came to grieve, not expecting Jesus to have risen, but to grieve his death still? To the disciples who were hiding in in fear and uncertainty, the proclamation of the empty tomb is now you shall see. And it's the hope of the church today who is still in a place of longing and waiting and wondering, longing for this promise to be declared again. Now you shall see what I will do. When we might come to this God and say, how long, O Lord, like the ancient psalmist often proclaimed and refrained through their song, bringing their lament and their doubt, how long, O Lord, how can you allow your name, your character to be tarnished like this? Do something. Show up. We long to hear you say, and now you shall see. Of all the things that we want to see revealed and know of God and in our world, maybe the last to be revealed is often his timing. We have his promises. We have his character. We stand on the faith of those that have gone before us. But the timing is often the most difficult thing. And again, we can speak of it in large scale, in centuries and millennia, or we can speak of it right into our own personal circumstances where we are praying repeatedly, perhaps for a loved one 
perhaps for some form of answer, perhaps for clarity. How long, O Lord, indeed, we long for now, you shall see. Remember that our ancient ancestors, at least in the faith, the Jewish people, longed for this promised coming Messiah who would come and make things all all right, who would come and deliver, who would come and be their king forever. You read through the prophets and the Psalms, it's repeated for, for centuries. And God does not come, and God does not come, and God is silent. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Galatians chapter 4. He says, Jesus came at the fullness of time. In the Greek, pleroma taukranu, the fullness of time. The exact right moment at just the right time. It's an amazing statement that could cause incredible irritation for those throughout the centuries that have longed for the coming Messiah. And here's the Apostle Paul, a Jew himself, saying, at just the right time, God came to the centuries that have lived and died longing to see the day. Is it possible we're in another day? From one hand, when we say, God, do something, the answer is, I have. But another side of that coin is, God, do something, it's, I will. And there will be centuries of faithful followers who endure and persevere, who never get to see the day that the church has longed for. The answer of now, you will see. Let me read that passage that I referred to. Galatians 4, chapter 3, verse 3. Galatians 4, verse 3. So with us, while we were still children, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, the exact precise moment God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. We are the church waiting again and longing again for the fullness of time, the exact right moment. For the now you will see what I will do. And as is one of our favorite prayers, or at least mine, from the Father in Mark chapter 9, who is desperate for Jesus to heal his boy. And he came to Jesus and said, if you can do anything, have mercy, have pity on us. And Jesus says, if I can, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And what is the prayer? What is the response of this desperate father? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals his son. And I think it's so powerful and tangible for us today because we find ourselves in that place often in our faith journey, in our wrestling. If this father had more than an ounce of faith, it was pure desperation. He didn't prove some level of faith to receive from Jesus this gift. 
He simply came. He drew near and even expresses his doubt. If you can do anything, have mercy. And he's coming to believe. You see this response. I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. For anyone who has prayed for a loved one who has suffered or has been sick, we know this desperate prayer. And Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And as we know, not always is the answer to that prayer received in the gift of healing or our loved one. But at a much bigger, broader level, the answer is, you will see. You will see. Trust me. And that's the invitation. It's the invitation of the whole journey, of the whole story. Will we walk by faith? Will we grow in it? Not perfect faith, this kind of faith. Will we grow to trust? Will we grow to draw near? And we will have days and times where it feels more easy and intimate and close, where we sense God's presence. And there will be days where it feels like we're wandering in the desert and God's word is like sandpaper to our soul. This is the hope of the faithful, the community of God, but we can also make it personal for the scripture is not absent of promises that speak right into our daily experiences. The Apostle James says it this way in James 1, 2. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy or pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. For if any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God and, it, and he will give generously to all without finding fault in your doubts, in your, in your small faith. He loves to give. It will be given to you. Notice again the invitation to come, to draw near, not to turn, but to bring all of ourselves to him and to recognize that there may even be purpose in the trial, in the testing, and in the timing. As much as that might be great, there may be purpose and reason. Again, not that God necessarily sends it. This world is filled with enough brokenness. It seems at times that he will send things to test us, to grow us. But at other times, it's simply the reality of walking in a broken, hurting world. Well, we sense God's presence in it. There's something he wants to do through it. I don't want to exercise. Anyone with me? I don't want to spend hours in the gym to run, to sweat, to put my body under tension and resistance and ultimately some level of hopefully controlled pain. I don't want it. I need it. There may be a spiritual metaphor there. In order to grow stronger, we need resistance. We need to be tested. We need to be pushed. It's the reality of how we grow. We don't want it. May we need it. 
So maybe it was never meant to be easy. I think we know this. This is the reality of, of this present life that ultimately is but a mist and a blip if we can gain God's perspective, but is meant to be an endurance and a perseverance. If we know this story of Moses' struggle and wrestle with God, we'll see something that what it seems that Moses has completely forgotten. In the account of the burning bush, what did God say would happen when he went to Pharaoh and he declared who God was? He did the signs that God told him to do. What did God say would happen? But Pharaoh will not listen. His heart will be hard. In fact, in one, one phraseology, I will harden his heart. God had said this would happen. This would not be an easy deliverance. There would be pain and trial. That didn't make it easy for Moses if he had forgotten, unlikely. But he's facing the reality of the pain and the hurt, especially of those he loved. How about another promise that we see in this passage from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, for now we see only in part. We see in a mirror dimly. I just have to think that ancient mirrors weren't quite as reflective as ours today. And so looking into a mirror was often a little fuzzy of a picture. And he's saying this is the metaphor of how we come to see God and understand him right now. We're only seeing in part. We're not seeing the full clarity of what God will ultimately reveal. For now only in part, but then, this one day, I will see fully and be fully known. But for now, faith, hope, and love abide. He's inviting us to a new perspective or to a changed perspective, to a trust in this God with us in our present experience. And I think this promise is on full display in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. God says to Moses that he chose to conceal himself to his forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Did you catch that when we heard it? He said, by my name, by my name Yahweh, I did not reveal myself to them. I did not make myself fully known. And yet these were men that God came to and established his covenant with and promises that even communed with God in a unique way. And yet God says, I concealed from them something of my character. A proverb, Proverb 24. Proverbs 25, 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. I think both parts of that proverb require a response. It's the glory of God to conceal? Again, the question, will we trust how God reveals himself, his purposes, his timing, his plans. And second, that second piece, it's the glory of kings to search them out. It's a glorious pursuit to strive to come to know God, to search out the mysteries of his character, 
of his will, of his ways. That's meant to be responded to like a journey, like an adventure. But it invites an incredible amount of trust, of perseverance, and endurance. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, a phrase that's kind of stuck with me recently, that the beginning of our faith journey, however you would define that time, maybe it was when you were a younger child, maybe it's now, but the beginning of your faith journey is coming to an awareness that God has been relentlessly pursuing you. And we've missed so much of it, but we're coming to see the ways he has been after us, chasing after us, as we've gone our own way or in our own will. That's the beginning of our faith journey. But as we grow in faith, as we come to mature, it shifts that we become the ones who relentlessly pursue after God, who chase after him. We see him in the world, in the places that maybe we least expect, and we want to be there with him. We chase after him in all of our emotion and uncertainty or doubts or fears to bring to him and even to his feet, if that's all we can, upon our knees to cry out as Moses does. But you, God, have not been faithful. And God engages us. If we will endure, if we will mature in this faith journey, we will hear these same words that God speaks to Moses in verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. There is nothing greater than this. So often we can get fixated on what God can do for us or this coming day of his kingdom's reign, which are good and right. And yet above them all is drawing near to the character of God, of who he is and what his desire is for his people. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done. And we could add, now, God, as Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray now, God, now we want to see what you will do. Let me hang this promise on the end of this message from the words of Jesus. As I prayed earlier, this is Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. They who seek find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. For which of you, if your child asks for bread, would give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would give him a snake. If you then, who often do evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God our Father give good gifts to those who ask? In Luke's account, he says, how much more will God give you the Spirit to those who ask him? The greatest gift of all, his presence. So let's do that now as we respond through these songs. Let's ask Let's seek, let's knock. That may be through the words that we readily sing and say. That may be through a heart expression. Some of us, I believe, are engaging with this in a way that would say, I don't know if I can express anything 
I'm generally numb. And God receives that too. You sons and daughters, you beloved of God, bring to him all that you are, all of your story from this past week, this past month, these past years. Come again. Return again. Pray with numbness. Pray with eagerness. Pray with desperation. Join in the faithful community that cries out, O God, be our God. How long, O Lord? We believe, help our unbelief. Now we want to see what you will do. Make now the day of your promises, God. We express it with the smallest of faith, and you receive it. And for those that have some big faith today, would you carry the rest of us in your heart, soul, and spirit as we respond? I'm going to invite the team to come. I'll pray in just a moment. And for guests with us, just a reminder, we have communion every week because we are people who forget. And we're told by Jesus himself, do this in remembrance. So every week, we want to be people who draw near to him. It's why the elements are on the tables there in the back and here in the front. So that we could come. We can be people of movement drawing near to him to receive. So I invite you. I believe the table is open to all who are drawing near to Jesus, regardless of level of faith or understanding. For he shared that first meal with his disciples who didn't even believe in the crucifixion or resurrection. He invited them, come. He shared even with Judas, who would betray him that night, his body and his blood. He had washed his feet. All are welcome to his table. Now may we come in humility for his mercy. Draw near. The bread there is vegan and gluten-free so that all can come to the table if you have dietary restrictions. As we sing, come at any point and receive individually, as a family. If today's not the day, receive his grace and mercy and come again next time. For those online and connecting, I hope you're able to participate in communion in some form to engage and receive, that you could be one with God's family today as he invites you. Hope to see you soon. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing these prayers in response. God, we believe. We are coming to believe. Help our unbelief. 